electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. Stocks are resuming their slide as we kick off the new week, with tech back to leading the declines. The Nasdaq down 2%. The semiconductors down nearly 3%. We dissected the downturn to look at what's causing it this time and whether we're in for a fourth quarter to forget. Meantime, the chase is on for energy. Those stocks bucking the downtrend again as oil hits a seven-year high, remaining the best sector for the year, the only one in the green last month, and frankly, not really the sector any of us want to see outperformers. We're on the other side of those bills. Anyway, will its winning streak continue? We'll also delve into that. And Facebook falling after some major negative publicity. Plus, now its services, including WhatsApp and Instagram, are experiencing outages. We'll have the latest with the shares down about 5% at last check, plus a check on crypto and other big movers. But first, Dom Chu here with the numbers for us. All right, that social story playing a large part in that market decline right now, Kelly. To give you an idea of just where we stand in the markets right now, it is near the session lows at this point in this stage here. The Nasdaq Composite, as Kelly highlighted there, really the epicenter for a lot of the weakness right now. Tech and communication services, media type companies, are really the ones getting hit the hardest. For that reason, you can see it down 2.5% for the NASDAQ composite, 365 points. The S&P 500 now below 4,300, down 71 points or 1.5% declines there. And the Dow Industrials outperforming, if that's what you want to call it, only down 1.25%. That's 432 points, 33,893 the last trade there. As Kelly mentioned, the social media stocks very much a focus for many traders today. That bombshell 60 Minutes report on CBS last night highlighting some of the inefficiencies and delinquencies that Facebook allegedly has with regard to handling misinformation, certainly not helping sentiment. Facebook shares right now down 5.5%. Twitter down 6.5%. Snapchat, the parent parent company there, Snap Inc., down 6.5% and 6% declines for Pinterest. So the entire social media complex really taking it on the chin in today's trade. And then one divergence that a lot of traders are watching right now. Tesla comes out with much better than expected vehicle deliveries in this past quarter. That stock is actually higher on the day. It's flirting between gains and losses right now. However, it's still higher. At the same time, the ARK Innovation ETF, the ticker ARKK, is actually lower. And check out that divergence that's been developing now for a couple of months now. Tesla, the white line, continues to trend higher. Meanwhile, the ARK Innovation ETF continues to drift a little bit lower. I only call this out, Kelly, because as many of our viewers and listeners know, the single biggest holding in that uh, ARK Innovation ETF Tesla shares with a a roughly 10 to 11 percent weighting. So you can see a lot of that correlation has been there over the better part of this year. It's breaking down here. We'll see if that kind of divergence really plays out more in the coming days and weeks. Cal, back over to you. Maybe they shouldn't have trimmed it, uh, but that's the way it goes. Dom, thank you very much. Short term Treasury yields are spiking after some headlines from President Biden in the past hour. This adding to the downward pressure on stocks as investors worry about a looming debt default. You can see the spike there on the screen behind me. Elon Moy is in Washington with the very latest for us. Elon? 
Well, Kelly, President Biden took Republicans to task for blocking a vote to raise the debt limit. Biden called on the GOP to allow Democrats to bring the bill to the Senate floor and to pass it with a simple majority vote. No GOP support needed. With just two weeks left to go before the Treasury likely hits the debt ceiling, Biden said there was no time for elaborate procedural schemes. He said that's when accidents happen and that he could not guarantee that the U.S. would not default. But this morning, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell sent the president a letter doubling down on his position that Republicans will not help Democrats do this job. And he warned that the nation is sleepwalking towards significant and avoidable danger. Now, the top Democrat in the Senate, Chuck Schumer, said today that he does plan to vote on the debt ceiling this week. And he said he'll keep the chamber in this weekend if that's necessary. Kelly. It's October now, so these days are becoming more important. Elon, thank you very much, Elon Moy, from the moment. Concerns about a debt default may be spooking the markets, but my next guest remains bullish and sees Dow 40,000 in the next 18 to 24 months. Joining me now is Neil Hennessy. He's the chief market strategist and portfolio manager at Hennessy Funds. Neil, welcome back. It's good to see you again. Thanks, Kelly. Would you describe this as sort of unbridled enthusiasm for stocks? And, and tell me what you make of this, this kind of fourth quarter choppiness that we're seeing. Well, I think people just have to look at the total picture and put it in perspective. I mean, if you look at what's been happening in the marketplace and now the headlines are tech are getting beat up and they're getting killed, well, they should have. If you look back at 2020 market, the NASDAQ was up 45%. But if you take out six of those companies, Facebook, Microsoft, Google, Apple, Tesla, Amazon, the market was only up 21%. The same thing's been happening this year. What I think's going to happen is we don't have euphoria in the overall marketplace. We have it in pockets of the marketplace, but not the total marketplace. And people are going to start to go back and start to buy quality in undervalued companies. Tell me about energy, Neil. What do we do with this one? What's your own view on it? Because this isn't sort of one of those stories of, hey, you know, the uh, the equities are mispriced relative to the crude. This is like global energy crunch, game on, kind of kind of worrisome. Well, as you know, Kelly, we have the Hennessy uh, uh, Gas Fund here. And interesting enough, if you look at natural gas, it's at six dollars uh, BTU. I mean, it's just crazy. And it went from a couple of bucks to there. So the, you look at the utility companies, they're going to continue to produce a lot more uh, profit and revenue, which in turn is most likely going to raise the dividends in that arena. We are having a short-term spike in energy costs that are scaring people. But you take that and you take it, put it with the other headlines of stagnation and this and that. But look at it. We still have mortgage rates under three and a half percent. We have a 10-year treasury that's at 150, and I know people are saying, God, it's really spiked. Kelly, it went from 130 to 150. I right. mean, I'm not, it's a 15% move, but it doesn't do anything to the economy. So when you put everything together and you look at what's happening, the Dow Jones is selling at 19 times earnings. That certainly is not an overvalued marketplace. On top of it, we're just coming out of this pandemic. Can you imagine once car sales start to spike back up? General Motors was down one-third amount of cars they sold. So we have this supply chain problem that's going to solve itself over time. And the next thing you know is we're going to be off to the races. And so, companies are going to make that much more money. They just can't help making more money with the amount of money sitting in the consumer's pocket, right. which is over $2 trillion. But I, let me just kind of ask, there's one area of what you just discussed there. It's actually a big source of discussion, debate, controversy, whatever you want to call it. So 
you know, what you're saying is that, you know, GM sales were down by a third year on year last month, but that you kind of turn the calendar towards 2022. They're going to be back to some normalized level again. The other school of thought, which you could call it the Kathy Wood point of view, but she's saying the surplus inventory is now in driveways and in garages, Neil, that there was historic demand for autos that is not going to come back right away. That if anything, now that entire physical goods sector has experienced possibly a glut that could cause a hangover or put downward pressure on prices and demand for the next couple of years. Well, I think that you had the used car market take off because nobody could get a new mar- uh, new car. Uh, very difficult. If you look at what the dealers are getting for their cars now, they're not just getting an invoice or less than an invoice. They're getting a well above invoice if you want to pay that kind of money. The bottom line here is people like to buy new. They do not like to buy uh, used first. So essentially, once the supply chain goes away, all these cars and trucks that have been made that are sitting there, and once they get the chips on them, are going to go quickly. People want to spend their money. They've been housebound for two years. I'm looking for a new truck, but <laughs> I can't get it. Yeah. So what am I going to do? You, t- Tyler, has talked about uh, he's trying to get a, you know, a car these days. You're in many other people just uh, who we come in contact with here. So it's obvious that there's still some pent-up demand, but you have to wonder what's on the other side of that. Semiconductors, Neil, same thing. People are talking about inventory builds. In autos, yes, but also in laptops. You know, we don't like inventory builds in the semiconductor space. So I just wonder if that's where, and this is what Morgan Stanley said this morning, that the risk is as we turn towards reopening, services are in demand again, are we going to see the price of a lot of goods plummet because they were overbuilt? Well, I'm not sure you're going to see it plummet. You know, once people get used to a higher price, they don't really then um, go back too much yeah. at it. I mean, we can go and look and look back a couple of years ago or five years ago when all of a sudden there was a, a surcharge for gasoline. So a laundry depart, a laundry company or whatever would deliver. There would be a surcharge because oil was that and gasoline was that much more expensive. But it never really came off. You look at restaurants and adding on health insurance in different communities. Mm-hmm. It never came off. So, you know, I'm not sure you're going to see a decline in prices, but you're not going to see them go up. Well, I should mention that your particular favorites lately, KB Home, Casey's General Stores, Vista Outdoor, we just spoke with that CEO. So while you do like the market, broadly speaking, and obviously would be a buyer of the dips here, there's some individual names if people are looking for those as well you think could outperform. Neil, a great discussion. Thanks for your time today. Anything you want to add? Uh, no, but uh, let's just look hopefully to the holiday season where we can actually buy some presents if we can get the stuff in the ports. I know. You better send yours out early this year. Uh, maybe a hol- <laughs> Halloween timing. Neil Hennessy with the Hennessy Funds. Thank you, as always. We appreciate it. Going to take a quick break here. Energy is one of the only bright spots today with crude coming off its sixth straight positive week and sitting at three-year highs. Up next, a look at the energy rally and the particular names that could benefit. Plus, it's been a record year for cyber attacks amid a spike and global hacking activity. We'll speak exclusively with the CEO of cybersecurity firm Mandiant as its corporate name changes from FireEye today. And here's a look at the S&P sector heat map energy in the lead. Tech is the worst performer. Utilities in the number two position. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? 
At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back, everybody. Let's focus on today's big winner. It's energy again. The sector rallying after OPEC sticks to its plan to only gradually raise oil output. WTI and Brent are surging about 3% today. WTI is at $78 a barrel. That's a seven-year high. Every member of the energy sector is in the green today and for the year. My next guest says expect even higher oil prices given the current underinvestment in crude. Joining me now is Stan Major. He's portfolio manager of the Hotchkiss and Wiley Midcap Value Fund. Stan, it is great to have you here. And boy, is this a hot area all of a sudden. What would you tell investors who think that this is the place to ride into year end? Sure, it's great to be here, Kelly. Yeah, as you mentioned, all of a sudden, um, this has been caught five to 10 years in the making. When you look at the energy sector, uh, we've seen a lot of underinvestment. So today we're spending half as much as we did five to 10 years ago, but we're consuming more, even with COVID. So there's been a lot of underinvestment. Um, what that does is with pretty good demand, demand is strengthening um, as we're coming out of COVID. Productive capacity is declining. We're just not spending enough money to keep capacity up, um, whether that's in the U.S. or, or OPEC, OPEC plus. And so we've got a very tight market. Uh, the Interesting thing about today, I've been covering this for 25 years, is that historically, when you've seen good prices, when you've seen good returns, you've seen capital come into the business. Mm -hmm. So simplistically, if you think about a balance sheet, uh, if you want capital to come into the business, uh, you need to raise debt and equity on one side of the balance sheet to finance assets. So you usually see that when things are good, we're seeing the opposite today. So we've got a tight oil market, but oil companies are doing the opposite. They're paying down debt. They're returning capital to shareholders. So the asset side is not increasing. And so that makes this a very interesting market where yeah. these, these, this tightness can continue. I have about 38 questions for you. So let me try to get for our audience who, who kind of just wants the picks. Let me get this out there right away. You like Marathon Oil, which has doubled this year. You like Penn, Virginia, which has tripled. Uh, you've got names like Cairn Energy, Vistra, NRG, Cosmos, you know, as, you know, two to three percent holdings. So. You know, I just want to discuss with you these comments from the IEA today, from Fatih Birol, who just said that the spikes in energy uh, that we're seeing, he was talking more specifically about nat gas, but I, I want to ask you the question, broadly speaking. He said they have nothing to do with the world's transition away from fossil fuels. Is that accurate? Is the underinvestment only because people want a strong return? Or to me, is it quite obviously because there's a massive divestment push away from fossil fuels happening as well? I would say just think about it in common sense. So energy is a very long lead time business. If you think about deep water, uh, it will take you 10 years before that project comes on. With so much uncertainty about crude oil demand in 2031, P 
people just are not spending the money today. So maybe he's making the case that directly today, it's not the transition to fossil fuels, but psychologically, people are not committing long-term capital. And so I, I think that does have something to do with with uh, what we're seeing today. I think it's early signs. So the knock-on question that I then have is one about investment returns. You know, there are people writing that if the fossil fuel industry just returned cash to shareholders, they could generate tremendous financial returns. You know, uh, sort of like what we saw with Altria over the past 15 you know, years or so. But if they try to invest in order to keep up with the changing times, that in a way presents more investment risk, even as places like Engine Number 1 are pushing Exxon to pursue those strategies. Do you, as an investor, have a preference in terms of which path you'd like them to take? Uh, we, we absolutely do have a preference. So if you think about the math about what you're asking, Currently, these companies, you mentioned Marathon, you know, they're generating significant amounts of free cash flow. The companies we're invested in are generating 20% of their, or their market cap in free cash flow. So wow. massive amounts. So $2 billion of free cash flow, the market caps are 10 or $11 billion. So when you think about that, they're taking that capital and unlike the past, returning it to shareholders. So if you think about a share buyback plan, which we favor over dividends, uh, a company can buy with a 20% free cash flow yield, could buy their entire uh, shares outstanding back in five years. Mm. That, that's incredible. Additionally, the business should consolidate. So as you know, if you look at the Permian, the Eagle for the Bakken, there's 30 or 40 companies. There should be two or three or four. And so with consolidation, you also get efficiency and higher profitability also. So wow. there's a lot of things going right. Uh, and, you know, we think if, if they, again, if they focus on the right side of the balance sheet, uh, pay down debt, buy back stock, um, it's not going to grow production. Uh, it, it can be very good for investors. So you're sort of on that side of the equation. Very, very interesting. Stan, we have to leave it there, but I do hope to have you back soon. Thank you so much for your time today. Great. I appreciate it. Stan Major is with the Hotchkiss and Wiley Midcap Value Fund. We have some more headlines coming in on Facebook. It has been a very busy day for them. Let's bring in Julia Borson. What's the latest, Julia? The latest is that Facebook has filed a motion to dismiss the FTC's amended complaint against the company. In a 55-page document, Facebook saying the FTC alleged no plausible factual basis for branding Facebook an unfair monopolist, saying the FTC has no data to support its allegation that it controls in excess of 60% of the social networking market, accusing the FTC of cherry-picking data and including data on just a handful of apps, and also saying that the FTC had no evidence that Facebook's market position was protected by barriers to entry barriers that prevented competition, saying that competition did occur from Snapchat and others. Also, Kelly, Facebook reiterating its claim that Lena Khan should be recused from this because she cannot be impartial. It's going to be fascinating to see how this all plays out. Interesting day to file the motion uh, with outages. They're experiencing a lot of pressure on them. And I think now well, Senator Markey uh, calling on them, uh, calling on the CEO to uh, to testify. Yes, well, I have to say that this filing is coming today because today is the deadline. They had 30 days. Today is the deadline of when they have to file. And traditionally, these things are not filed ahead of the deadline. They're always filed on the day of the deadline. So I do think, Kelly, that that is yeah. actually a coincidence. I think as journalists, we understand that. You know, nothing gets done until it has to. Uh, Julia, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Again, Facebook shares are still down more than 5% right now. At session lows, they were down nearly 6%. And that reflects the pressure across the whole tech space right now. There's 
Here's the Dow 30 heat map as the index uh, still down about 390 points. Merck and Chevron and IBM helping it keep positive. Visa, Salesforce and Apple are among the biggest laggard. There's another threat lurking for the blue chips, specifically those names that generate most of their revenue overseas. We will explain after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Off the lows, the Dow is about 150 points off the lows when we were down 504 earlier in the session. Still down 1%, and the Nasdaq actually is still near its own session lows. It's only about 40 points off of that level. So watch the continued pressure and some of these names today. Uh, S&P, for its part, down 1.5%. So let's zoom in on tech for a moment, which is the biggest loser. The big cap tech names are seeing declines across the board. Alphabet down 3%. Facebook's not even out here. That's a little different story. It's down more than 5%. And here are a look at their losses from their all-time highs, they're really starting to add up. Amazon, the biggest underperformer with a 15% correction. Apple down 12%. Alphabet down 10 Microsoft down 8%. Also in the red today are the EV names. Lordstown, Blink, Fisker, and Neo seeing declines of 5 to 8%. In Lordstown case, Lordstown's around $6 a share right now. Uh, also some of the worst performers on the NASDAQ. And the cloud and remote work names are also seeing the selling pressure today. They're among the biggest laggards, uh, as you can see behind me, with names like DocuSign down 5.5%. Also keep an eye on the semiconductor ETF, the SMH. It's down nearly 3% with names like NVIDIA down 5%. As more people look at areas of the semiconductor space that might now be seeing uh, a glut forming autos, laptop computers, things like that. We've been speaking with uh, Stacey Razgon of Bernstein. Let's get over to Frank Holland for a CNBC News update now. Hi, Frank. Hi, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour in California. Cleanup efforts ramping up to limit damage from one of the largest oil spills in recent California history. More than a mile of oil booms have been deployed to corral some oil slicks, wildlife officials are racing to find and rescue animals that have been harmed by the oil. On the news, the search for the cause of the spill, that's tonight at 7 Eastern. New York City's mandate for public school workers to get vaccinated has gone into effect. Mayor de Blasio says 95% of the 150,000 people affected have gotten their shots. That includes more than 18,000 school workers who got vaccinated since September the 24th. President Biden will go to the Chicago area on Thursday. He'll be pushing his administration's efforts to encourage more Americans to get vaccinated. And European regulators have approved COVID vaccine booster shots for people 18 years and older. The European Medical Agency says booster doses should be considered six months after the second shot was received. That's the latest. Kelly, back over to you. All right, Frank, thank you very much. Still ahead, Facebook falling again, about 5.3%. As we just said, it's down 15% now from its all-time high. We'll have the latest. There's been a lot of headlines today for this stock. And as we head to break, some big news from inside CNBC. Our own Jim Cramer is now delivered right to your inbox with the CNBC Investing Club. He's been sending it out just in the last few minutes. He's got daily emails. He's writing for our website. He's appearing in videos online, all to give you his unique insights into the markets and a front row seat to what stocks Jim is trading in his charitable trust. He'll tell you his winners and losers, total transparency. You can sign up to find out more at cnbc.com slash investing club or with that QR code on the screen. We're back in a moment. 
Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch you up on a few stories that are moving the Nasdaq today. Here to break down the headlines, Neelai Patel is editor-in-chief of The Verge and a CNBC contributor. Delano Sapporo is founder of New Street Advisors and also a CNBC contributor. And so is Steve Grasso, who is also here, and he is also the CEO of Grasso Global. It is great to have everybody. What a day. Let's start with some of the biggest movers. Facebook is probably the, the sort of main one here, down 5.5%. They've got these reported outages for everything from Facebook to Instagram to WhatsApp. They've got last week's whistleblower revealing herself to be former product manager for civic misinformation, saying the company is acting purely in self-interest. The company is still up 20 percent this year, despite questions about its practices and social impact. So let's start with you, Steve Grasso. Is Facebook kind of the reason why the market is under so much pressure today? Is it just getting swept up in all of this? Is it, is it just coincidental, I guess, that it's down this much or... Or what do you make of how would you relate its own uh, problems to the problems the broader market is experiencing if there is any relation? Yeah, so it, it doesn't help to your point, right, right, Kelly? And on the show, you cover the, the stories du jour, uh, obviously better than, than any, anyone. And you notice that it's been about China. It's been about Chairman Powell. It's been about rising rates. It's been about the rotation out of growth into value. So this is the latest of the stories that are hitting the market. But if I look back on a chart and go back to the summer of 2020, Facebook was under a lot of pressure there as well. And that was bought. I do believe, I do agree, I should say, with Jim Cramer that this time appears to be different. Having said that, I don't know how different this is going to be and and when buyers will step in. But back then, the stock fell 20%. We're, fall, we're down from, from peak about 16% or so. Mm-hmm. Another so you, couple of points. Are you a buyer, you the, Steve? Okay. Uh, I wouldn't be a buyer just yet, but I'm just giving the, the uh, viewers out there, 315 is your 200-day moving average. That gets you right in line with the sell-off that we saw in the summer slash fall mm-hmm. of 2020 if you are thinking about buying a dip in Facebook. So that's certainly one line to watch. Delano, are you a buyer here? Yeah, because I think, you know, as mentioned by Steve, there's a lot of factors at play. And I think you should be a buyer here. Um, as mentioned, this dip is about 15 to 60% off its highs. You know, we looked at the bad news flow. And we, we obviously know that there's going to be some more regulatory scrutiny and some some legal risk that's at play here. But I'm looking at, you know, if you pull back the chart, as mentioned, if you're looking at this as being one of the bigger and better market cap perform, mega market cap performing stocks this year, as well as the platform, right, as well as the family of products still growing at about 3 billion daily average users for their family of products. And also that whole macro level event of digital advertising, digital spend, that's still a great tailwind for Facebook here. And I still think that comes to play at some point, buyers step in. So you probably want to be careful at what entry points you enter, but you should be looking for opportunities here, Kelly. Neelai, let me phrase the question this way. Is there anything that regulators could do that would hurt Facebook without helping investors? In other words, most of the time, if they pursue more regulation, it helps Facebook. They're the biggest. They can comply the best. They can outdistance everybody. If they break them up, probably helps investors. <laughs> they wouldn't mind, you know, seeing Instagram separate from WhatsApp, separate from Facebook. Can regulators do anything to punish Facebook that won't actually help its long-run financial performance? I think there's a lot regulators want to do. I think right now we are so exhausted by endless Facebook scandals that we might not be seeing this one uh, for the scale that it has and the impact that it has. 
What you have with the whistleblower is Facebook's own research, Facebook's own employees saying this company is hurting people in X, Y, and Z ways, specific ways, with teen girls and body image issues, with radicalization. That stuff is cannon fodder for regulators. The whistleblower says she doesn't want Facebook to be broken up. She's obviously on the Hill tomorrow. Facebook itself says it wants regulations. I think it wants to capture the industry in that way. I think every regulator in this country has finally been handed a sheet of papers from Facebook itself that says this company is doing harm and it knows it. And I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a lot for Facebook to get through this in a way that doesn't result in a company being radically restructured, whether that's a breakup or whether that's a governance change, which sure. I think a lot of people would like to see. Something is coming this time. It seems to me, Delano, maybe the only two sources of pressure could be massive divestment on the ESG front. Although, again, if you look at the financial performance of Altria, not necessarily a bad thing. But maybe you could destroy the profitability by requiring them to have such a humongous um, content curation staff that it literally the, the platform economics are no longer attractive. Does that make sense to you as an investor? And do you see that risk looming at all? Yeah, that's certainly a risk. And I do agree with some sort of ESG front where Facebook is bringing to the forefront maybe a plan on how they're going to comply and how they're going to make the platform better. Because we know, as, as mentioned in the report, that they are being, a lot of the reports and a lot of the, the content that's being shared is driven on some non-factual information, on some harmful information. And so if they're bringing forth this and kind of getting in the forefront of it, this could be a good opportunity. And, and we want to see some governance changes that yeah. could potentially be strong for investors. And I think that'd be the best way to go uh, as from an investor standpoint. Yeah, and it, I know people keep saying, you know, the risk that advertisers leave, but it feels like they're not going to leave until they really have to and their eyeballs really go elsewhere. All right, let's move along and talk about Netflix, which is hitting an all-time high today before dropping 3% amid the wider tech sell-off. It's pretty significant. This is the only of the fang names that was up in September. And, well, here's part of the reason Netflix's app downloads are reaching all-time highs following the release of buzzworthy series Squid Game. So they're now up 12% over the past three months after going nowhere in the previous year. They're outperforming, Steve. Uh, are you a buyer of Netflix here? I, I'm not personally a buyer. I don't own it. And, but, but that doesn't mean that I don't agree with the bu bullish thesis. And when my uh, four kids are asking me for my password <laughs> for Netflix, I know, that is, I know that's, uh, that's a bullish theme for Kelly. But think about what Netflix is, a high-growth tech stock. Where, where are we seeing rotation out of? High-growth tech stocks. So you are going to get the macro headwind, but this, it has not damaged the stock as of yet. There has to be some growth stocks that are considered value, I dare say. And Netflix is probably in that bucket, along with Apple, Google, and the, the jury is out on Facebook. You can't say it's value anymore. Um, maybe Amazon. But the truth is, Kelly, when we talk about this rotation, just broaden it out and then I'll get specific. If you broaden it out and you say, okay, they're rotating out of tech and they're going into cyclicals and value, the market's going lower simply because there's the, the percentages of the S&P yeah, are the not of high enough yeah. in, the va in the value area. But to answer your question, Netflix, I'm still bullish, but I'd like to see it come back a little bit, come back to earth. And I'm, I think a lot of investors would as well. All right, I'm going to blend a couple of our topics here together then. So if you'd be a buyer of Netflix, Steve, would you be a buyer of AMC? Because we had 4 million people in theaters over the weekend. The stock's still lower today. You've got the Bond movie doing well internationally, but then some uh, high profile flops here at home. So you have Netflix, you'd be adding. What would you do with AMC? And IMAX, I should note, uh, I think is also outperforming today. 
Right. So IMAX would be my bet there. AMC, AMC, as you know, has a lot of noise around that stock. So, so IMAX is, is, a, is an event-driven stock. And what I mean by that is you, when you want to see a movie like the caliber of a Bond movie or, or an adventure movie, you go to IMAX. Yeah. People want to get out of their homes. It's not like watching in your living room when you have surround sound. I would be a buyer of IMAX into the Bond release. All right. Delano, what about you? If I give you Netflix, you can throw in another streaming play if you'd like to do it that way versus the traditional movie theaters. Where would you be adding? You know, I'm long Netflix and definitely bullish Netflix. And I think the main reasons why I would potentially look to add here is, as mentioned, they did hold up. Netflix did hold up in September, which was pretty strong. And as we saw, a massive sell-off in September, correction, I should say. Um, And so when you're looking at Netflix, the big thing that investors are looking for is the queue up and the content coming in quarter four, um, which we obviously know Squid Game has been a a kind of a massive success. Um, That's driving subscribing. That's driving downloads. There still is, you know, more more content in Q4 that I think is going to be bullish in the sense of bringing subscribers and bringing that content to the forefront. And I think that's the reason why Well Capitalized, obviously the balance sheet is doing well and all that cash is going into content. And mm-hmm. I think the big thing in a streaming game, in a streaming competition is going to be content and who wins that area. And I think Netflix is doing a really, really good job. So I'd still be looking at Netflix here, Kelly. Neil, I'll give you the final comment as I'm sure you've seen all of the excitement around Squid Game. The fact that Netflix is finally you know, acting like it used to. Um, is it time to curb our enthusiasm about this or not? I think we're looking at these numbers and we're looking at the social media growth uh, as a proxy for subscriber growth, which is what Netflix has been soft on recently. Mm-hmm. We'll see if this translates into actual subscriber growth or reduced churn, which I think is actually a bigger danger for Netflix. The churn itself with all the other options that are out there. And finally, Neelai, about the traditional movie theaters, do you think this is just a head fake or are they really starting to mount somewhat of a comeback here? I think it's a little bit of a comeback. You look at Venom, basically loud movies. I think people want to go see loud movies in theaters with big sound systems and huge screens. And movies like Many Saints of Newark are better at home with the captions on so you can understand what people are saying. And I think that's going to be a split that just carries off uh, for time to come. Okay, if people want loud, they can just come over to my house any weekend uh, for free. I won't even charge you. And that will provide popcorn and a variety of snacks. Um, Neelai Delano and Steve, thank you all for your time today in this sell-off. Some of the names people can add. We really, really appreciate it. Checking back on the broader markets right now, the S&P and Dow are down more than a percent. The Nasdaq still hit the hardest with declines of 2.3 percent. Some of the worst performers in the Nasdaq 100 are the former stay-at-home flyers, like high flyers, I should say, like Zoom, Peloton, and DocuSign. We'll talk about the impact the strong dollar could have on stocks and commodities. Stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back. It's been kind of under the radar, uh, but it shouldn't be. The dollar's been rising over the past month by nearly 2%. It could have a big impact on some of the big companies that do business all over the world, not to mention uh, commodities. Let's bring in Seema Modi now for more on the potential impact. Seema? Kelly, the minute the dollar starts to strengthen, strategists across Wall Street examine which companies are most at risk. Uh, The macro team at Oppenheimer says technology and energy are the most vulnerable with over half of their sales outside the U.S. The stronger dollar, remember, makes their products uh, more expensive overseas and pressures profits. Within technology, the chip stocks like NVIDIA, Texas Instruments, Maxim generate over 70% of revenue internationally, according to Goldman. Uh, Industrials are also high on the list. After years of expanding overseas in new markets, Melius Research says 3M is the most exposed given its presence in emerging markets. 
Uh, worth noting, shares of 3M were downgraded today by J.P. Morgan to neutral from overweight. The stock is down about uh, 9% in the past four weeks. Taking a step back, though, Kelly, the dollar strength, supply chain constraints, the ongoing uncertainty around China, there's a cost to going global, right? And one question portfolio managers are trying to answer, do companies start to rethink their plans to diversify? The percentage of foreign sales, in fact, of big U.S. companies has, has come down in recent years. And Oppenheimer says that is due to the dollar, geopolitics, COVID as well. The market, though, starting to take note of this in recent weeks. Just take a look at the S&P 500. It's been underperforming the small cap index, which does have more of a domestic tilt. And that's a a one month chart right there, Kelly. It's a great point. There's also commodities. So if we look at even a day like today, if you have crude rising with the dollar rising as well, it's almost like it's got twice the oomph uh, that it would otherwise if it was just the flip side of a sinking currency. And it's these type of market dislocations when you can't always provide an exact narrative as to why the commodities, right? Well, OPEC, we know, is a big part of the story today. But yes, these type of currency fluctuations, the broader implications it has on not just commodities, or big companies like Schlumberger, by the way, I was just looking at this great report from Goldman, uh, over 55% of its sales outside the U.S. It's these type of oil, energy, uh, mining giants that have now so much more to think about, right? Not just what's going on in China. Yeah, absolutely. Seema, thank you very much, Arsene. Modi. Speaking of the dollar, a big interview coming up tomorrow on CNBC. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen joining Squawk Box at 7.30 a.m. Eastern Time. Someone, please remind me. Uh, you know, I'm going to forget. I'll be dealing with breakfast. Uh, coming up on the exchange, a particularly dangerous and nefarious type of cyber attack that you don't see coming and you can't buy your way out of. Plus a former high-flying stock that lost nearly half its value this year with more potential bad news on the horizon. And the Dow right now down just shy of 400 points. We're back in a moment as we monitor the sell-off. Welcome back to The Exchange. Zero-day attacks are considered some of the most destructive cyber attacks as hackers exploit a flaw in a system with malware before developers can patch the vulnerability. And according to Mandiant, zero-day attacks are hitting new record highs. Through July of this year, they broke the previous record set in 2019, and we're on pace to double the number of attacks from each of the last two years. So what can be done to prevent these malicious actors? Our own Eamon Javers is here with a CNBC exclusive interview with Kevin Mandia, the CEO of Mandiant. Eamon? Hi, Kelly. That's right. I am here with Kevin Mandia of Mandiant. Kevin, thank you so much for being here. You guys are having a big week. You've got Mm -hmm. this big conference here in Washington, D.C. this week, and you've got a new ticker symbol that starts tomorrow. What's that symbol going to be? MNDT will be the new symbol. So, yeah, this is kind of Mandiant 2.0. You know, Mandiant existed from 2004 to about 2014. We were bought by FireEye, and we felt the best thing for both organizations, you know, five, I guess it's seven years later now, uh, to take FireEye products, they have been bought by Symphony Technology Group, and we'll be, you know, we announced that divestiture a few months ago. And Mandiant's going to be controls agnostic, Eamon. We want to work with all the technologies out there that are trying to defend our customers and take our expertise and our intel and our frontline experience and just close the security gap. So you see a roll up in cybersecurity. This might be like a little bit of a roll out in cybersecurity as you separate right. those two companies. It, again. it was yeah, absolutely. We had to separate when we looked at. You know, Mandiant's always been controls agnostic. We work with any endpoint company, any network company. Our goal is defend our customers and even beyond that, defend critical infrastructure for nations. 
Let me ask you about one big headline that we saw over the mm -hmm. weekend. It's very early. Right. You might not know anything about it just yet, but we saw this Pandora Papers right. leak of just thousands and thousands of documents. Right. There must have been a cybersecurity component to that. And as we look at this, you know, so much fascination about the wealth right. of people around mm -hmm. the world, fraud that might have happened there. But one big question is going to be, who done it? Right, what absolutely. would you do if you were looking at that to try to figure out, you know, what type of person would it be who leaked that? What would we start sure. to do to start to figure out the mystery there? Well, you got a couple places you're going to start. You got to look at everything that was leaked, Eamon, and where did it come from? You know, how would you collect that information? What expertise would it take? And you'd love to be able to get investigative folks to look at the sources. Where did it all originate from? Was it a cyber component? Or was it someone on the inside feeding the information outside? Maybe it was somebody that had 25 sources, 30 different sources. So you go to origin, and then you go to how was it leaked? What was the TTPs or tools, tactics, and procedures on how you disseminated or laundered that information to the press or to sites? Do you think we'll ever know who did it? That is an excellent question. I think people will investigate. Uh, it's too soon to know the probability of the outcome of that investigation. One of the things that you guys have said this year is we're seeing a record number of zero days. Those right. are the toughest attacks to defend against in mm -hmm. cybersecurity because a zero day means literally that the defending company has never right. seen this attack before. Right. So why are we, first of all, what are the numbers looking like? Sure. And then why are we seeing all this? Yeah, I mean, zero days are hard for you to detect because there's no patch form, right? So what happens is zero day is going to work if you have vulnerable software. In 2019 or 2019, we saw 32 zero days deployed. That means somebody exploited those zero days uh, at that time and gained access, unlawful access to a network. We saw 30 in 2020. We're already up to 64 in 2021. 64. Now, these yep, things are expensive, setting. right? I mean, if yeah. you're on the, on the dark web and you want to buy a zero day, which right. you can do, you know, that's not cheap, right? Well, it can be hundreds of thousands of dollars, Eamon, but here's the catch. If you're making millions from the intrusions via ransomware or extortion or some other kind of attack, you know, there's an investment case there that if you have a zero day, you will use it against the high value targets. Those that if you do get into their networks and you do extort them, maybe they're in an industry more likely to pay. Maybe the information that they harbor that if you steal is so valuable, the risk equation or their analysis will be Cheaper to pay the ransom than pay the price. Seems to me that what you're talking about here is a well-capitalized mm -hmm. group of bad guys who have a right. lot of cash to spend to go after even bigger pots of cash. Mm -hmm. And that a lot of this cash that, that they have to spend is coming from American companies who are paying the right. ransoms in the first place. So this is a self-fulfilling economic ecosystem. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you, we respond to about 100 ransomware cases or more every single year. And I don't think the default answer by any of the CEOs is, hey, let's just pay the ransom and be done with it. People start with a default no. And you're seeing, I think, as a nation, we're looking at technology that helps us prevent the problem, the skills that people need to prevent the problem. And even at our conference this week, we're talking to government officials about how can we have diplomacy and a coordinated national response to this problem. Because here's the fact, Stephen, nobody likes ransomware except the ransomware actors. Speaking of government officials, you guys have been doing a little bit of research into the recent German election. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me what you saw there. Well, for, you know, bottom line is a couple years ago, we noticed a group that we refer to as Ghostwriter, and they were kind of posting anti-NATO sentiment years ago. This is a group that combines several different operations, even. They don't just hack. They also do information operations. Sometimes it's a group that compromises networks and a whole different skill set to lie to people, deceive people, or influence the hearts and minds of people. Ghostwriter is a group that does both. They'll compromise and change website content to near truths, false truths. And were they doing that people. in Germany? 
they were doing that in Germany. So we did give notice to folks that we know over there to let them know. Sometimes. So you the, alerted the German government absolutely. to what you saw? We did. And did they, were they able to put a stop to it? Uh, you know, it's hard for anyone to be omniscient about whether they stopped all activities. You always wonder in cyberspace, are we aware of 98% of what the bad guys are up to or only 2%? And here's the unfortunate reality. It's probably closer to 2% on any given day. 2%. Wow. Well, hacks, leaks, lies, thefts. You live in a very interesting world, Kevin Mandia. We're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Kelly, let me toss it back over to you. We really appreciate it, Eamon. Such a key issue. I know you've been doing so much to bring it to our attention. Eamon Javers with Kevin Mandia today. Let's take a look at how the cyber stocks have been performing this year. Let's begin with the hack ETF. It's only up about 5% underperforming the markets. CrowdStrike has fared better, up 11%. And the real outperformer has actually been Palo Alto Networks, up 32%. It's more than tripled since the March 2020 lows. And let's check on the NASDAQ right now. A tech wreck, it's been called today, down two and a third percent. Facebook is leading the way lower, though, with a big decline in the range of five to six percent. And we'll speak with a former tech high flyer uh, about this fall from favor that's lost half its value. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. Shares of Palantir are lower today. They're down four and a half percent. But look at this peak to drop decline, uh, trough decline down by almost 50 percent from their highs this year. The company announcing a small deal today, but it could potentially lose a much larger government contract. Josh Lipton is here with more. Josh. And Kelly, we did get some news out of Palantir today as well. The data miner announcing that it extended its contract. In fact, with the NIH, the contract is potentially worth $60 million over two years. Team at William Blair notes that it looks like the company also secured an extension of an existing contract with the VA. That stock down, though, again today, now about 50% off that January high. Palantir making its public debut in September 2020, remember, and it is still up, we should note, about 150% in the past 12 months. They have also been reports that the company might lose a contract with ICE. Palantir declining comment there, and analysts think it wouldn't actually be financially material, even if that rumor turns out to be true. But then, what does, in fact, explain the recent tough stretch here? I caught up with RBC's Rishi Jaluria in part. Rishi says this stock did get caught up in that meme stock craze. It hit levels it should not have, in his opinion. Even now, as that frenzy cools, Rishi argues, that stock still looks pricey by his math. On the other hand, I spoke with Brent Till at Jefferies as well. He's a bull on this name. Palantir is working hard to bring its technology, he says, to the mass market. If successful, he says, Palantir will see sustained commercial revenue growth that will change the investor narrative for the better. Yes, it is expensive, Brett concedes, but also, in his opinion, very unique. Kelly, back to you. So have concerns passed for now about its key government contracts, Josh? I think that, you know, listen, Palantir, in some sense, when you look at tech more broadly, Kelly, it's coming under pressure for a lot of reasons. One reason would be, you know, fading pandemic tailwinds. That is a question on the street that some financial analysts have. They'll say that government business, its bread and butter, saw huge growth during the pandemic. But Mm -hmm. what happens post-pandemic, Palantir will counter it, is winning business and contracts with government agencies, Kelly. All right, Josh. Thank you, Josh Lipton. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.